Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Yulia Zoja. I'm with the Middle East Institute and Georgetown University, and I'm joined today by Giselle Donnelly from the American Enterprise Institute and Dali Barohaj, also from AEI. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges um, to European peace that have emerged along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Today, we're joined again and thrilled to be doing so by Fred Kagan, who is going to um, uh, not need any introductions. And uh, and so I'm going to just um, uh, take it over to Fred and ask him to give us um, a general lay of the land um, as we are looking at the conflict on April 29th, 2022. Fred, what can you tell us? How are the Russians doing? Well, it's good to be, it's good to be back with you all. Um, and to say that the front lines haven't changed all that much in the last few days, even though the Russians are clearly leaning into the operation. Um, it continues to be the case that the Russians are making most of their gains along the Izum axis. Uh, and I think that uh, there are some reasons for that that I can go into. Um, they are they have clearly adopted um, the new tactic that's been reported on uh, relatively widely of uh, beginning with heavy artillery bombardments and then trying just to roll forward slowly into uh, ground they've um, destroyed. This is um, There's a term for this, uh, which certainly Giselle will remember. It's called methodical battle. And this was the approach that the French um, military was ready to take uh, before the uh, Second World War, which worked splendidly. It doesn't seem to be working um, much better here. Uh, and the Russians are continuing to struggle with um, the reality that, uh, well, there are several realities. One is that you can you can blast the bejesus out of an area with artillery, but that doesn't actually kill all the defenders. And if your own forces are so badly degraded, uh, at low strength, with terrible morale, um, they will stop relatively quickly uh, when they encounter resistance. And that seems to be the general pattern that we've observed. Um, so the Russians are nevertheless sort of grinding on, and there is a, a Stalinist, um, you know, quantity has a quality all its own uh, phenomenon here. Uh, so it's not really, I'm not prepared to say that the Russians won't be able to grind through with sheer weight of numbers. Um, but so far, uh, we really haven't seen fast moving advances for sure, haven't seen very dramatic advances. Um, and the Ukrainians have been able to counter in general terms. Um, outside of the Izium axis, the Russians have made even less progress. They've, they've tried to attack uh, north from Donetsk repeatedly uh, and failed. They keep trying to break out of Popasna uh, to the east and, and failing. And they, they, they seem to have de-emphasize direct assaults on the Rubizhne and are focused on um, encircling, enveloping or encircling it. And I think one of the phenomena, particularly in the in the Papasna and Avdivka area around Donetsk that is going on, is that where the Russians still have to fight and penetrate through areas that the Ukrainians had been preparing 
since 2014 for defense, the Russians are really, really struggling. And I think one of the reasons why the Izium Axis has been more successful is that the Ukrainians had not been expecting an attack in that direction, hadn't been preparing it as much. As the Ukrainians have clearly sort of flooded into that zone and set up defenses, they've managed to halt the Russians uh, or slow that down. But I think that is a dynamic that helps explain some of the differential performance uh, of Russian forces uh, from Izium as compared to Donetsk. It's important to note that fighting continues in Mariupol, and it's not just about the Russians pounding the plant. Uh, there, there are indications that Ukrainian forces still hold positions outside of the catacombs and the tunnels that the Russians need, uh, and the Russians are still struggling to take the perimeter, are still struggling to take the highway that runs along uh, the, the northern and western uh, perimeter of the complex. And so that, that fighting is, at, is, is not done, and Mariupol hasn't uh, fully fallen yet. And then there continues to be activity um, in the Kherson region uh, and secondarily Zaporizhia. The Russians and Ukrainians have largely been training, back, trading back and forth counteroffensives that have added up to little net change. Uh, but it's noteworthy that the, on the one hand, the Ukrainians are, are trying to push counteroffensives there. On the other hand, the Russians are continuing to reinforce there which is a diversion of forces from what should, in principle, be their main effort. And we could talk about whether that's because of what the Ukrainians are doing or because the Russians are just continuing the practice of attacking all along the line. That's not entirely clear yet. Maybe before we get into uh, sort of the nitty gritty of what's happening in different parts of of, of, of Ukraine, I, I wonder if you could give us your sort of general prediction of where things are headed, because we've heard... Uh, several times already this idea that there is something of a deadline in you know May 9 for 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 Putin's regime um, at which there would be maybe a ceasefire offer to the Ukrainians uh, however the way it looks on the ground is is that you know like whatever territory has been taken by May 9th will be you know fairly underwhelming as a, as a sort of result of this campaign. Um, recently, um, the British Foreign Secretary Liz Truss suggested that actually this war might go on for five years. So so where do you stand on, you know, where you think sort of things are sort of headed in this, you know, should we be gearing for a, for a long conflict or, or is there, you know, maybe some sort of rabbit to be pulled out of the head, you know, invasion of Moldova, something that that, that Putin could sell at home as a, is a victory, uh, what, what your expectations are. Dalibor, the only question that I can answer straightforwardly is we should definitely be gearing up for a long war because that is a real possibility and we should not assume uh, that this war will be short. We should be ready to support Ukraine over the long term. Um, and I think the president's recent request for aid uh, reflects that and rightly reflects it. And I hope that that... Um, that politic, various political shenanigans won't um, delay that aid uh, and that commitment to fighting for the long term. So in a, in a straightforward way, I, that's the only question I can easily answer. I had been in the camp that thought that Putin might well uh, declare victory on May 9th, um, and he yet may. Uh, yesterday, I think it was um, Denise Pushilin, the uh, DNR dictator, uh, announced that there would not be a Victory Day parade in Mariupol. Uh, I don't want to overread that, um, but that suggests, along with various other things, that you know possibly Putin is not going to stop hostilities. 
I'm very concerned about Moldova. I'll put a pin in that because I would love to talk with you more about that separately. But in this context, I will say that if you look at the possibility that Russia would recognize the Prinistrovian Moldavian Republic uh, as it styles itself in Transnistria, um, along with uh, possibly the Kherson People's Republic and the I don't know, Mariupol People's Republic and a bunch of other people's republics. Putin does seem to have forgotten that this isn't the Soviet Union anymore, but it's it's all right. Old habits die hard. You know, they, they really they really do, man. Um, you know, I could imagine a, a Victory Day, you know, celebration of the liberation of all of these wonderful people's republics uh, to mask the fact that the front line has not uh, moved the way that he that he wants it to. So that's a possible way out of that uh, conundrum that he might be pursuing. But he's clearly leaning into the offensive operations and he gets more, more Hitlerian every day in the, in the nature of his command, as far as I can tell, you know, uh, it's so ironic to me. I've said this before on this podcast, I think, but I just, I keep having in my, in my head echoing Hitler saying Kharkov must be held (laughs) and Manstein saying, I'd rather lose a city than an army. And and I just I feel like that conversation is going on or should be going on if his commanders are honest every day because Putin is saying you know you must take Slavyansk you must take Kramatorsk you must take these areas and the commanders have to be saying to themselves at least you know this isn't going to happen. Well, that one didn't end all that well for Manstein. In the, in the well, it ended better for Manstein than for Hitler. Well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose that's true. <laughs> Wanted to pick up on one of your initial comments. Um, yeah, the Russians have gone seem to have gone back to their more traditional artillery centric uh, way of war, but it also seems like whatever advantages they have in that are are going to be fairly short lived. Uh, with the delivery, I mean, they may still have uh, huge volumes of it, but we've already seen, you know, again. I can't go to bed at night without uh, watching uh, an array of Russian tanks blow up on Twitter. It's, <laughs> it's, it's like, you know, it's like, uh, you know, sniffing lavender or something like that. To calm <laughs> but so there were also on Twitter last night, I saw, you know, uh, you know who knows exactly what it was, but a video of uh, MLRS launch, uh, you know, from a apparently delivered uh, MLRS. Um the first batch of uh, 155 howitzers have arrived. The Canadians have offered the longer range munitions for those uh, uh, for those cannons. So, yeah, I mean, again, it looks like it might that the the ability to stand off at leisure and pound away is going to be a little bit more risky uh, with each passing day. Uh, and so what, what do the Russians do then? Look, I mean, I think we're, there's a bit of a race or there should be a race to get the Ukrainians the volume of tubes and rounds that they need. I think, you know, it's important to note one of the reasons why both sides are doing this is because both sides seem to have given up on getting air superiority over the adversaries' lines. So if you're going to do long range fires, you're going to do it with artillery. And the Russians have an initial advantage in that, um, and we're we're working to give the Ukrainians, you know, balance against that. But as you know, I mean, artillery doesn't balance artillery in that in that way. But I think the Russians have the fundamental problem here, which is 
artillery is just another way of delivering fires. And the notion that you can deliver enough fires to crush defenders and then just roll through them has been disproven repeatedly over the years. And if you're really going to do that, then there's a degree of combined arms coordination that's required because otherwise, you know, you really are in this sort of World War I mode where you do the barrage and then the barrage lifts and then you try to move forward and you discover that the remaining defenders who do have, in this case, javelins rather than heavy, you know, water-cooled machine guns are still able to start taking your tanks out and you just don't have that many tanks. So the, you know, the attack stalls. Yeah, actually there was even one report that the Ukrainians have more serviceable tanks than, than do the Russians. I don't, I, I, don't, I mean, I, that, that could be entirely apocryphal, but it's not in, incredible. Yeah. yeah, I'd be a little surprised. Uh, yeah, I'd be no, a little I, surprised yeah, if that was true net net, although yeah. it could be true in theater. In, it theater. Could be true in theater, in theater, yeah, yeah, not outside. It's possible. Mm. Yeah, it's possible. Uh, also, with all all the all the tanks that they've been kidnapping with tractors, so um, and and reusing now. Yes, but but I wonder. Yeah. Advanced tactical tractor is, is is something that should be on our procurement list. <laughs> um, and and they're pretty fantastic. These tractors they look very modern. Anyway, uh, <laughs> compared to what we have in the region, but um, but but I'm wondering kind of two questions here. Uh, I know you've been looking closely also at the explosions that have been taking place um, on Russian territory, um, more in my understanding, military strategic at the border, but also some political ones in Moscow. And on the military strategic side, I wonder how does the, is it too early to call? Does that start to make a difference in terms of their logistics, their refueling, all of that? that that's the first question. And then the, the second question is, we've seen um, throughout this war as before the end of the Battle of Kiev and after that um, periodically the Russians, I don't know if they're running out of stuff or what their message is, um, but periodically they like to hit the big cities, Kiev, and then in the West. And yesterday um, they hit Kiev while the UN Secretary General was there. I don't, you know, now they have a new enemy. Good, good job. Um, and, and unfortunately also killed, I saw this morning, um, a journalist of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I wonder, how do you see this pattern going into the next few weeks and months on the public opinion um, uh, front of course this is dreadful because it tells ukrainians you cannot be safe anywhere in lviv and in kiev etc but but i wonder from a military perspective how what are they trying to do and how much more of that do you think they will be doing so on the first question i i don't know what the effect on the russian logistics and and movement is of these attacks Um, I I would say that the Russian logistics system in general seems to be sufficiently fragile that it's hard for me to imagine that disruptions like this won't generate downstream effects, you know, in a properly resilient logistical arrangement, you, one might shrug most of these things off, um, as unfortunate, uh, in the case of the Russians, it really does seem to be pretty fragile. 
So I would expect that it it would probably be generating some effects, but it's just it's really it's really impossible for me to say. I also don't want to make a call about what exactly is, you know, driving the calculations to hit Kiev and other cities. I would expect that it's partly retaliation for the uh, apparent attacks in Russian territory. I would expect that it's also uh, an attempt to, you know, retaliation for Western support, Western military support. And Putin does seem to be wanting to try to escalate or demonstrate a willingness to escalate in order to deter the West from providing military support of certain sorts. Um, I'm also not able to track the targeting the Russians have been going after precisely, but they, in general terms, have often been hitting military targets. Um, and I think trying, I think they are actually trying to pinpoint locations where they think Western equipment is at and destroy it. They don't always obviously hit what they aim at. It's getting a pizza delivered in an apartment building in Lviv. <laughs> yeah, no. And I'm, I am also sure that there are also some of this is terror attack yeah. and, and, and so on. But um, how much of it can they do? Look, the, no one no one knows how many actual missiles they have of different calibers. I suspect they don't even fully know themselves, yeah. although they may have actually counted them all by now. Um, but it's clearly a limited arsenal. And so they've clearly had to make choices. And we may... I, I, well, I don't want to speculate too much. I, I, I don't know. But I, I think the, the questions about their arsenal capabilities are really prominent here. They shot something like 1,700 or 1,800 long range and cruise missiles and, and stuff like that. And other than, you know, reinforcing Ukrainian will to fight and uh, Western resolve, it doesn't certainly seem to have had any strategic effect. It doesn't seem to have had any operational effect, um, but they keep doing it. Well, I, look, I mean, I, I don't know because we're not, we're not watching yeah. the Ukrainians, yeah. you know, that carefully. What, I, what I'll say is that they've done the opposite of what one should do with weapons like this, because one should conduct a coordinated, concentrated campaign to achieve an operational strategic effect that one is then prepared to take advantage of. That is the opposite of what oh, they have man, done. Oh, man, you should have told me that from the start. Yeah, rats. <laughs> we would have done this real different. Yeah. So, I mean, and it's very much an open question for me about why they didn't do that to begin with, which is in accord with their doctrine, and why, having realized that they were in a mess, they didn't then do it, but they never have done it. And so these kinds of dribs and drabs approaches to this kind of thing it's very hard to achieve an operational effect with that with that kind of, of thing. So I don't know what's driving that. I, I have no idea what's driving that, the decision-making behind this kind of activity. But if they continue this pattern, then they're unlikely to achieve an operational or strategic effect, I think. To switch a little bit, um, Fred, there have been... I'm not quite sure that I can see a pattern in it, but it's, it does seem like uh, the filtration operations have taken a bit of an uptick um, in the last week or so. Uh, have you guys been tracking that? And uh, also, I saw some reports about people being deported as far away as Siberia, which, you know, again, has kind of a Soviet echo to it. Yeah, this is... 
Well, I mean, look, first of all, I think we need to be straight with ourselves. The question of what we can actually prove is, is a different thing, but I'm prepared to assess that the filtration activities were ordered by senior Russian leaders um, and they do follow a coherent pattern in general terms. Um, and of course, this is the practice that goes back to the first Chechen war. Um, I think the, and I'm, I'm wary of saying that there's an uptick in activity. There's an uptick in reporting. Okay. And this has been a challenge all along. Um, I think there probably has been an uptick in activity. Look, one of the things that I think is going on is the Russians really, really want to have, you know, referenda um, that uh, let them declare these people's republics, but Ukrainians are not wearing it. Um, and so I do think that one of the things that's happening is population displacement um, in preparation to bring in, uh, you know, Russians uh, or pretend to bring in Russians who will at least plausibly create lines outside of polling stations at referenda so that they can claim that actually somebody voted because the Ukrainians are just not not doing it. So I'm, I'm concerned that there is a kind of an ethnic cleansing going on here that is moving populations in order to move other populations in. I don't have evidence, I don't have concrete evidence that that's going on, um, but I think it is. They're also clearly impressing uh, inhabitants into their military forces, forcing people to fight. Um, and then there, the continued reports of, um, interrogations, torture and, and killing of people, um, who, you know, whom they don't like and killing people who are on kill lists and, and various other things. All of that is rolling on behind the lines and this continues and will continue as long as the Russians occupy Ukrainian territory. And that's why helping Ukraine liberate the whole of its country is the only way that we can actually help stop these atrocities. Could we talk now a little bit in more detail about one of the the possible scenarios going forward? So, so the Russians have been saying that they want to have this land bridge on the, on the Black Sea coast all the way to, I suppose, Transnistria, Moldova. Uh, there have been these false flag clearly attacks in, 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 in the capital of Transnistria. What would a Russian takeover of Moldova, if something like that is in the cards, look like? And how would it change the sort of broader strategic outlook for Russians within Ukraine if they were to take over, let's say, Moldova and that tiny little chunk of Ukraine west of the Dniester River? Would that set them up sort of well for a future siege of Odessa, possibly uh, is this far-fetched to imagine, or, or is this something that, that, that might well happen given, for example, the amphibious capabilities that, 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 that the Russians had or seem to have, have at, at the earlier stages of the, of the invasion. So, so how, how should we sort of organize our thinking about what might happen in that southwestern part of Ukraine and in Moldova in the coming weeks. I'm very alarmed about what's going on in Moldova. The Russians are clearly setting conditions to do something. And I think they're they're certainly setting conditions at a minimum to recognize the the PMR um uh you know as as uh, as they did with the DNR and the LNR. Um and we're seeing reports that you know additional Russian forces are, have have gone in or are coming in. And those forces could could be used to attack Ukraine uh, from the West. I'm extraordinarily skeptical that that gets them uh, Odessa 
it's not at all clear to me that the Russians actually have the capabilities to conduct a large-scale amphibious assault at this point. First of all, they actually would have to be willing to brave the Neptune missiles, um, which they might want to think twice about after the ship that was optimally designed to defend against those missiles went down. I'm sorry, in heavy seas after an accidental ammunition explosion. <laughs> um, so, And the Russians do seem to have gotten much more wary of Ukrainian um, missile defense systems after that. So that it's, it's, it's hard to have those two thoughts in your head at the same time, right? That we're worried about Ukrainian ship-to-shore missiles or shore-to-ship missiles, but we're going to do an amphibious landing, okay? After you, um, comrade. Yeah, yeah. E- e- <laughs> Even apart from that, um, you know, they've committed their naval infantry already. Uh, they, those guys have been chewed up fighting for Mariupol. So it's not like the 810th mm-hmm. is standing there ready, you know, to, to land. Those guys have already fought and, and gotten chewed up. So I, I think that's pretty far-fetched. The only other way they do this would be by, you know, getting from Kherson to Odessa from the east. They're not taking Nikolaev. Even if they took Nikolaev, I have confidence the Ukrainians dropped the bridge before they got there. So they're not going through Nikolaev, which means the only way that they're doing this is to go all the way back up around to like Bosnia-Sansk and try to... They don't have the forces to do anything like that in certainly any short period of time. So it would be like an un, basically sort of an unsupported attack by the, the two semi-lame motorized rifle battalions in Transnistria and whatever mob of Transnistrian soldiers they get going, um, those guys are not going to take Odessa. Now, it would be a morale and a psychological blow to Ukraine if Odessa came under land attack and so forth. But I I suspect that the Ukrainian forces there would hold it without requiring reinforcements, and we would end up just with a bunch more dead Russians and, and the Strovians. But that's not the scenario that scares me the most. The scenario that really worries me is that they use, they lever this manufactured crisis to destabilize Moldova and possibly collapse it. And that is very worrisome because that puts crisis of that variety on the, directly on the NATO border, you know, without the buffer of Western Ukraine, because even though Ukraine is on the NATO, lots of NATO borders, Mm -hmm. but the fact that the Russians never got into Western Ukraine meant that there was based de facto a kind of a buffer. This would put the crisis right on the Romanian border. It would give the Romanians and NATO something to think about other than helping the Ukrainians, uh, you know, fight in the East. It would also alter the news cycle and get some of the Russian. So, I mean, it's goodness in many, many ways for Putin to engage this kind of activity. And it's a kind of a horizontal escalation, right? a way of showing that he can hurt us without, you know, going to tactical nuclear weapons and other and other things. So, is there any way for us to preempt that as the United States or, or the alliance? I, I don't know enough about Moldova to really to understand what what our options um, would be there, but we certainly need to be ready for it, and we certainly need to think about what um, what the positioning of our forces is to guard against such a situation and what our policy would be. Yeah. Are we actually going to let Putin wreck another country and we just watch? I, I, I again, you know, I'm a, become a Twitter obsessive, but there was a really cheering a video of a striker unit uh, doing its usual 60 mile an hour, uh, you know, reportedly in Eastern 
Romania. So maybe we are positioned um, at least to influence the situation, if not to intervene directly. I mean, again, you can, yeah. it's really hard to um, be sure of what you're looking at in these cases, but you know, it, it made sense at any rate. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think we do, we really do have to ask ourselves if, if Putin is going to tear up another state, a state which it has neutrality written into its constitution, which is not applying to NATO and isn't going to be applying to NATO, you know, which really this is just unprovoked uh, aggression on Russia's part. The Ukraine thing was unprovoked aggression also. This is, in some senses, even more out there if he goes in this direction. Um and it's also a situation in which the military requirement for defending Moldova is relatively trivial compared to the military requirement for defending Ukraine. I mean, nothing is trivial, but the obstacle is going to continue to be that, you know, the whole notion that, you know, once you have Russians and Americans shooting at each other, it's World War III. Um, and I'm afraid that that mindset is going to paralyze certain kinds of thinking here. Fred, before we go, um, I wonder if I could ask one final question. You guys have really been ahead of the curve in uh, trying to discover what's up with, uh, you know, guerrilla irregular warfare groups in the land bridge um, uh, from Crimea to Donbass and so on and so forth. I see a lot of little blue circles popping up on your daily maps. Uh, again, it's it's a, something that makes sense that we've sort of been anticipating, but I have not seen a lot of factual reporting about that. So if you could tell us what you guys are, are think are assessing in that regard, that would be really good. Well, so don't, don't, don't overestimate us because we're not actively collecting on that and we're not trying to understand what's going on there. We're actually really in that case, largely reporting out what the Ukrainians are telling us. Um, and the Ukrainians are saying more than is being widely reported, right? Uh, right. which is what we're capturing. But um, for one thing, the Ukrainians have been messaging to their people to leave the partisan warfare to their trained personnel and not take it on themselves as individuals, um, which suggests that there's a, what you can see, that there's an organized undertaking They've thought about here. this, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they've thought about it, they've prepared for it, right. they've got some command and control in place, and they're using trained personnel to do things. They're posting the numbers of Russians that they claim to have killed. Um, and we can get after this from the standpoint of the effects we see this generating on the Russians, which is on the one hand, continued effort, Russian efforts to clamp down on populations. And I think that tying back to our earlier discussion, probably some of the acceleration of the filtration is an attempt to get, get control over these partisan activities. I'm sure there will be as successful as such things always are. Um, but uh, I think that's part of it. But it's also, I'm, I'm certain that it's tying down Russian forces in these areas um, because this is going on particularly around Melitopol and Melitopol is a critical, you know, trans, uh, communications hub, as you, as you know. Um, it's a rail hub and a road and a road network. The Russians need to be able to move through there. And so as the Ukrainians are challenging these areas of Russian control and with partisan warfare, they're fueling the Russian strategic consumption problem, which is making it harder for the Russians to concentrate all their forces on fighting. I think there may be an additional dynamic here, which is the Russian forces don't want to fight. 
And so I think it's, and we hear little bits and pieces suggesting that this might be the case, that um, Russian commanders at, ver- at many echelons will look for any excuse not to go to the front line at this point. And the Ukrainian partisans are giving them excuses. So there's a possibly a weird sort of psychological warfare aspect of this also, that they're fueling a Russian lack of enthusiasm for fighting and letting Russian commanders say, well, we need to stay here because this is a critical communications hub and there's partisans all over the place. It would be, I'm not, I don't know that the Ukrainians are doing that, but I'm going to give them constructive credit for it because it would be a nice game. And that's the effect that they seem to be achieving. Well, as long as the Russians are arguing about it on their cell phones, uh, that's a... <laughs> on their very secure cell phones, yes, right. Fred, is there something that we have not covered uh, in your mind? We're going to have to have a long series of conversations at some point, we all collectively, about how we assessed Russian capabilities going into this and how we have continued to assess them going through this. Um, And on the one hand, I think there's the challenge of getting back to conventional warfare mindset. On the other hand, I think we're seeing a lot of complexity uh, there as forces, as the Russians have experimented with different models of units and different command and control relationships or lack thereof and various other things. And, and almost all of them badly detrimental to actual combat power and combat effectiveness. Uh, lots of them probably briefed well, um, and some of them look cool. Very transformational. But yeah. Um, now, it, it, you know, I mean, it's also important that they didn't fight even the way they were ostensibly organized to fight, and they didn't fight even the way they'd actually trained. And so it's, we're going to have to figure out how to disaggregate those but there's something here that is, is going to be an important series of larger reflections for us to think about how to understand, how to forecast the effects of particular organizational and other kinds of changes on the military, and then how to understand that in an adversary. And I think as we look at the Chinese, who are also you know, engaging in various kinds of transformations and reforms, uh, these questions should be front of mind. That sounds like a topic for another show. From me, Yulia Zoza, and my friends, Giselle Donnelly and and Dalibur Rohaj. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have emerged along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AEI.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please stay in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod in one word. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and until next time, goodbye.